ask that uh, if you've got a Bible that you turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts 13, we'll be starting at verse 13. Acts chapter 13, starting at verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. 
Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astonished, astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they, that's Paul and Barnabas, shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father, as we come to your word this morning, it cannot, it must not, uh, be in the confidence of our own strength, either to deliver the word or to hear the word, or to apply the word. But our confidence must be in you, the God who has appointed men and women to eternal life. And so, Lord, just as you have appointed some to be saved, we pray that your word would build them up and call them in, call them to Christ, that Jesus, that your gospel might be glorified. This we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> On uh, March 4, 1861, uh, the nation waited with bated breath. It was the date of Abraham Lincoln's inauguration, his official entry into the presidential office. At that time, if you know your American history, the nation was at a crossroads. Tensions uh, were growing between uh, the states. There was the question of slavery. There was an obscure political candidate in Abraham Lincoln who had shot to prominence and won the highest office of the land over more tested men. And now he was scheduled to give his inaugural address. And the inaugural address in this country has a special place because it's the first address of the president. It sets the expectations for his leadership. 
It answers the question, what is he going to be about? What, what are the big deals in his administration? What can we expect from him? Now, Lincoln's inauguration speech with its famous reference to our better angels was one of the uh, finest pieces of, of speech making and speech giving that uh, America has ever seen. But in spite of that, reactions to it uh, tell us a lot. The reactions were fairly divided in spite of the eloquence and the power of his message. Well, our passage today is like Paul's inaugural address. It's the first recorded sermon that he gives in his first missionary journey. And like a presidential inaugural address, it will set the tone, it will set the pattern for Paul's ministry that will take place throughout the book of Acts. And it will also tell us something about how people will respond to Paul's message and to Paul's Savior. So here are two questions that we're going to be looking at in the sermon this morning. First, what message should we expect from Paul? What is Paul's gospel? I would say this is particularly important. Uh, It's important for all of us, but if you're visiting with us this morning, I would ask you to consider this question above all others. What's at the heart of Paul's message? Because what you'll find at the heart of Paul's message is what is at the heart of Christianity. It's It's what Christianity is all about. So be asking yourself, what is Paul's message? What is Paul's gospel? But a second question is is one that's uh, equally important. What sort of reactions does Paul's gospel get? What uh, What sort of response on the part of the people does his gospel, which is just a word which means good news, what what response does, does that gospel provoke and why? So be considering these questions as we go forward. Now, before we get into our passage this morning, we need to understand the situation we find ourselves in. The book of Acts uh, was an account uh, written by Luke, who was a historian and a doctor uh, by training, and he wrote it for his acquaintance, Theophilus. And Luke wrote the book of Acts to Theophilus to explain for Theophilus how the gospel of Jesus moved from Jerusalem, where Jesus uh, was crucified and raised to life, and how it went from there uh, to the ends of the earth. Luke's goal is to show how a motley crew of uh, Jesus' followers, only about 120 uh, people in all, we read about in the beginning of Acts, how that motley crew are empowered by God's Spirit to take God's message about God's promised Savior to the ends of the earth. And one of the message, or one of the people that God is going to use to take his message global is the Apostle Paul. And our passage picks up with Paul and his co-worker Barnabas on a mission in Pisidia in the Roman province of Galatia, which just to situate yourself would be modern-day Turkey. As I've said, Paul has just begun the first of three missionary journeys that he would go on. So you might uh, think of this as Paul's debut as a missionary evangelist. Now when Paul and Barnabas get to Antioch, which was a town in Pisidia, uh, they go, because they're good Jews, they go to the synagogue. 
And this was the place where Jews would go uh, for worship, for prayers, for reading their Bibles, for uh, hearing sermons, uh, sort of like you're doing this morning. And so Paul and Barnabas go to the synagogue, and when they get there, they're asked by the leaders to give the day's sermon. So Paul stands up, and he gives his first recorded sermon. Now, by noting uh, the three main movements in Paul's sermon, we're going to see what is central to his message, what's central to his gospel, what is at the center or the heart of Christianity. And this is very timely for all of us, whether you've grown up in the church or not. It's timely because there's a lot of confusion today, even in Reformed churches, about what the gospel exactly is. Sometimes we see that by uh, equating certain implications of the gospel with the gospel itself. We're just not clear on what is at the heart of the New Testament gospel. So let's ask the question plainly, what's Paul's gospel? Well, first, Paul's gospel begins with the promises of God. Specifically, they begin with God's promise to provide a savior king through the line of David. Now, starting at verse 17, Paul gives a sort of sweeping summary of some major events in Israel's history. So if you're not familiar with your Old Testament, Paul is just hitting some highlights uh, as he goes through this. He says, God freely chose Israel to be his people, not because of anything in them, but he freely chose them and he blessed them and he made them numerous. God carried the people uh, through the desert. Led them out of Egypt in spite of their wickedness and rebellion. God upheld them. He preserved them. God provided Israel with uh, a prom- the land that He had promised to give to their forefather Abraham. God gave the people judges to curb their wickedness and their sinfulness and to deliver them from their enemies. He gave them a king, though in asking for a king, they were just looking to be like the other pagan nations whom God had not chosen. See, in spite of all God, or, or the people's constant moral and spiritual failings, which were many throughout the Old Testament, God did not abandon His people. God did not uh, give His people over entirely to their own sin or to their enemies. That's what we see by this emphasis of what God constantly is doing, God being the subject to the verbs in, in this section. No, instead, rather than giving his people over, God provided Israel with a king, David, from whom he said he would provide a savior, a deliverer for his people. In God's eternal plan of salvation, God brought Israel to this point with David as her king, and he went on to record a promise to David, the promise being that he would bring salvation, deliverance to his people through David's line. So when we're talking about Paul's gospel, we need to begin by noting that the gospel begins with God's gracious promises to his people, that God has published his intentions to save throughout the history of his people. That's why later in Paul's letters, he'll emphasize that the gospel isn't just something that just happened, but the gospel is, is the story of Christ dying and rising in accordance with the scriptures. It's, it's, it's the fulfillment of promises that God, God has gone on record with. 
It's the reason that Paul begins by explaining uh, the gospel to uh, these Jews by, by pointing to their history, a history that stretches back. It's because the good news at the heart of Christianity is the unfurling story of, God, uh, of a God who keeps his promises in spite of our sin and in spite of our unworthiness. Now this sets Christianity up against so many other worldviews. It says that history matters. It says that the gospel that Paul is preaching isn't simply a matter of, of principles. It's not simply platitudes. It's not sort of ethereal vagaries or, or, or doctrines that hang up in the air. Rather, the gospel is the unfolding of God's promise-making and God's promise-keeping in history. The good news of salvation from Paul wasn't just something that hangs out there like some vague spiritual thing. If it was, there would be no need to rehearse this history, to talk about God's dealings with Israel. It'd be unnecessary to speak of desert wanderings and, and judges and kings, but Paul mentions these because the gospel begins with God's promises to deliver his people. And it's from these promises, from his dealing with his people in history, that the sweet blossoms of salvation will spring up. So Paul's gospel begins with gracious promises of God. But the good news is not just that God has made salvation promises, it's that God has kept them. That's the second point in Paul's sermon. God's promised Savior King has come. Paul says in verse 26 that the message of salvation is grounded in Jesus Christ's innocent suffering. It's grounded in his death, his burial, his resurrection from the dead. This, these events are at the heart of the Christian gospel. Again, notice that the heart of Paul's message isn't simply a spirit or an attitude, but these are real and actual events in history. That there's an actual uh, arresting of Jesus. There's an actual execution of Jesus on a cross. That Jesus' body was actually laid in a tomb. That he was raised and he appeared in space and time to witnesses who saw him, beheld him, touched him. There's a sense in which these events have taken place, uh, actually taken place, and they have fundamentally transformed human history. The death of, and resurrection of Christ is the means by which God has kept his promises to provide the blessings of a Savior King to his people. That's what the, uh, the summary of, of the case Paul is making in verses 33 to 36 when he piles up three Old Testament quotations. He's saying, in effect, that Jesus has been raised, that he's actually conquered death, and that this is the sign that God's promised salvation plan has moved from promise to fulfillment, that the promised Savior is here. So Paul's sermon shows us that the gospel was something that was anticipated, a promise. It's also something that uh, was accomplished, something done in history as Christ died and was raised to life. But the gospel also requires a response. Since Jesus, the promised Savior, has now actually died and he has actually been raised, there's a promise and there's a warning that is held out to people and they must respond. 
Now, the promise is that this promised Savior King, Jesus, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and that through Jesus, by Jesus, everyone who believes in him is freed, is released, is justified, is is the word uh, in Greek, uh, or pronounced innocent from everything that they could not be set free from, from the law of Moses. Since God has kept his promise in sending Jesus, this Savior King, there is a way for you to be forgiven of your sins. There is a way for you to be set free and declared innocent of all guilt that sin incurs. I recently um, was talking to someone who um, uh, was being charged an absurd amount of interest on uh, their mortgage payments. And uh, this person uh, just felt completely stuck and absolutely frustrated. Uh, They felt like uh, this option was their only option and and they were just going to have to deal with it. And they were feeling the frustration of of being uh, in in this place in which there was nothing they could do about it. They were just going to pay these extraordinarily high rates. And I shared their frustration because I knew that they were in a difficult financial position. And that interest rates at these levels would, uh, no matter how hard they worked, no matter how hard they tried, they'd only be digging themselves deeper and deeper and deeper into debt. And the person who was charging uh, these interest rates was just squeezing them dry until they had nothing left to give. Freedom from this debt, this mortgage that they had initially accrued, was going to be, from my vantage point, impossible. Well, too many of us are living our lives before God like my friend. We know that we've sinned, we've accrued a moral debt before God, but we think that God has set an impossibly high interest rate. But we've just got to put our heads down and keep making payments, moral payments, spiritual payments, and we might eventually somehow dig ourselves out. But it's just what we've got to do. We, we've got no other choice. We've just got to white knuckle it. We're stuck. We feel frustrated. This way of doing things will only bring you into further and further ruin. You'll never pay off the debt. But the good news that Paul declares is that through Christ, our debt, the debt of our sin, has been wiped clean. It's been forgiven. There's no furiously, futilely uh, trying to dig our way out of the hole that our guilt has created by just doing better, by just working harder, by just doing more. No, that's the point behind Paul's declaration that through Christ, everyone who believes in him has been set free from that which they could not be set free from by the law of Moses. The law of Moses, with its legal or moral commands, didn't provide a way for the people to get out of the guilt uh, and moral debt that they had before God. No matter how vigorously they tried to keep God's commands, it wouldn't happen. So Paul says to his audience, no, the law of Moses, that's not the way of deliverance. Forgiveness and freedom from sin is offered to you By this Savior King of God's promise, of God's provision, this Savior King has offered you freedom and forgiveness of sins as you believe in Him. That's the promise that Paul's calling his hearers to respond to. It's the promise that God is calling you to respond to this morning. 
And at the same time, it also comes, Paul's gospel, with a warning. That if you should reject this message, the people, Paul says, they would come under the judgment of God and they would perish. That's the point of the quotation from the prophet Habakkuk in verse 41. Those who do not listen to the word of God will be like the Israelites in the Old Testament who did not uh, listen to God's word but rejected it. And so God sent the armies of Babylon upon those people. It's a sober warning for, for Paul's hearers. It's a sober warning for us. It's a reminder that God's gospel demands a response from us. Either we'll accept it in faith, either we will accept his Savior King, Jesus, in faith, or we'll be like the scoffers who God has promised should be caused to perish. You can't ignore it. You can't put it off. So if the gospel calls for a personal response, then it's also worth noting here that Luke gives us the response that Paul's inaugural sermon gets. And in many ways, this sets the stage for Paul's subsequent missionary activity. Initially, the response is very positive. Paul finishes his sermon, uh, he, he walks out of the synagogue, and the people are begging him to come back next week. Uh, they're, they're just, they're following him home. That's the kind of the response, you know, a preacher really wants. So it's a very positive response. Well, the next week when Paul and Barnabas arrive at the synagogue, they see that the parking lot is full, the overflow room is overflowing, and the whole city, Jew and Gentile, is present to hear the word of the Lord. They've been drawn to hear this message about a Savior. But the initial interest that Paul and Barnabas uh, had to their sermon was soon to give way to other more negative reactions. When the Jews, and by this Luke uh, almost certainly means the Jewish leaders, saw that the synagogue parking lot was full and the overflow room was overflowing, they were filled with jealousy, our text tells us. Here's the guest minister who comes in and he is, he is uh, he's filling their pulpit and he's drawing record crowds. Uh, the person who wouldn't come to synagogue has finally showed up. And the Jewish leaders are filled with jealousy. And they begin to challenge what Paul is saying, and they begin to slander him, bombarding him with insults, blaspheming him. It's not true, you can hear them yell. Paul's a lunatic. He doesn't know what he's talking about. See, not only were they rejecting Paul, but in rejecting Paul as the messenger, they were also rejecting Paul's gospel message. Now, sometimes people respond by rejecting the gospel and those who bring it. We know that. This shouldn't surprise us. Sometimes it does, but it shouldn't. Sometimes, like in our passage, good, moral, religious people who know their Bibles, can quote their Bibles, will shut down any talk about uh, Jesus who came and who died and who rose again to save sinners from the wrath of God. It happens. Rejection happens. This could be in your Sunday school classroom. This could be in your small group, your family. This could be at work or just the stranger you're talking to in Myers. We shouldn't be surprised when the gospel is rejected. It's what we see here. But it's also important to note that this particular act of rejection was significant within uh, God's plan of salvation. God had entered into a special relationship with the Jews. 
And for this reason, the unfolding of his plan of salvation had concentrated on the Jewish people. It was as though a camera had been zoomed in tightly on Israel, watching the unfolding of this plan. This was the focus to this point. This was the hub of salvation activity. This wasn't to say that God was not interested in doing things outside of Israel, or that he was only interested in the Jews, or that he was disinterested in the Gentiles, those people who did not belong to Israel. All along, all throughout the the Old Testament scriptures, there were hints that God's purposes were greater and grander than just Israel. We see that one important example of that in Genesis 12, when God gives this gospel promise to Abraham, and he says that in your offspring, all the families of the earth would be blessed. In Jesus' own ministry, though the primary focus was to the Jews, his ministry to the Jews. His ministry was pregnant with expectation that God's great work of salvation wasn't just narrowly bound up in this people group, this one group of people. It had a a broader scope. And that's what makes this sermon of Paul and Barnabas so important. It's what makes the reaction to the sermon so noteworthy. The envy that that their gospel incites is an an occasion for the doors of salvation to swing open to the nations, to swing open to the Gentiles. And this would be the pattern for the rest of Paul's ministry. The rejection of the gospel by the Jews becomes the opportunity for the gospel to be flung out wide to the Gentiles. This wasn't an afterthought on God's part. It wasn't that he all of a sudden said, well, this isn't working out, so I'd better go to these people over here. But the news of salvation that would stretch to the ends of the earth, that would gather men and women into the saving embrace of God, this was long anticipated. This is why Paul and Barnabas could quote from Isaiah's prophecy made several centuries earlier when he said, I will make you, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This was a a prophecy in Isaiah 49 that was made about God's special suffering servant. It was made about the, the promised figure who God would provide, who would bind up the wounds of his people and heal them from their sin. And when Jesus comes, and and he's just an infant, and he's taken to the temple, these words are applied to him. Luke's already told us this in in his gospel. Jesus was the true servant, the true suffering servant, who would come and would be a light in the darkness of the nations. He would be the one who would bring salvation to every corner of the map. Jesus, as God's promised servant would be the one who would show just how far and wide the mercy of and grace of God stretched. So you might want to ask, well, if Jesus was the servant promised in Isaiah, why then is Paul, are Paul and Barnabas taking uh, God's words to Isaiah and saying that this is God's command to them? I have made you a light for the Gentiles. Well, the reason is that Paul and Barnabas were ambassadors of Jesus. Insofar as they were faithfully speaking about Jesus, they were a light to the Gentiles. As representatives of Christ, bearing his gospel, they would bring salvation to the ends of the earth. They would pivot the proclamation of salvation out uh, 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 to all the nations of the world. And in so doing, they would shine a gospel light which would tear a hole in darkness created by guilt and sin in the nations. Men would, and women would come into the light of Christ and be saved. 
And so this leads us to the second response. It's the response of the Gentiles, verses 48 and 49. When the Gentiles heard this, that Paul and Barnabas came as commissioned messengers of God to bring the light of salvation to the Gentiles, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord began to spread throughout the whole region. So notice that. When the Gentiles hear that salvation has come to them, according to God's appointment, they express joy because of the news, they expressed appreciation or praise for the news, and then they spread that news eagerly. Imagine that you were, were one of the Gentiles pressed into that Antiochian crowd. Perhaps your conscience was telling you that you were a sinner, that you had fallen short of God's standards, but you weren't sure what was to be done about it. You had unsuccessfully tried various remedies to deal with your guilt, And now you stood at the fringes of God's chosen people where there seemed to be clearly defined lines drawn. There were devout Jews who had appeared to be on the fast track lane of God's favor. People who knew their Bibles, people who grew up participating in God's worship. They were immersed in the things of God. They're over here. And then there's you wondering what sort of position am I in? Your standing before God feels uh, uncertain, feels uneasy. Now this morning I expect that some of you are in this same place. You're sitting there feeling as if you're several steps behind at least all the folks around you. And it seems like there's a boundary line of God's grace that they're standing inside of and you're standing on the outside of and God's mercy stretches as far as them but it doesn't stretch as far as you. Then think about the wave of joy that would wash over the Gentiles who were listening to Paul as they heard about a God who had sent messengers of salvation to them, of a God who had sent ambassadors of of his Savior so that salvation could come to them. That salvation wasn't just the inheritance of those who grew up in tidy, God-fearing homes where the Bible was memorized and where the kids piled into the station wagon to drive to synagogue. No, Yes, God's grace flowed to the Gentiles, but it didn't stop there. His salvation from sin, it was bursting forth to the ends of the earth. It extended to the man who had spent his whole life up to that point indulging in sin and wickedness. It surged forth to the woman who had spent her life chasing idols that couldn't satisfy her or free her from the guilt of her sin. You see, not only did God's plan of salvation stretch back into history, as Paul's sermon made clear, but it also uh, uh, stretched out to bring salvation to the ends of the earth, to bring people to salvation from every corner. So friend, if this is something new that you're hearing this morning, you can understand why the Gentiles responded as they did. It was as if they were standing out on a cold doorstep, hesitant to knock, wondering whether they'd be welcomed in, and then suddenly the door opens and this warm, inviting voice says, Hello, come in. I've prepared a place for you. Please, come in. Right? Through Paul and Barnabas, God was reaching out to the Gentiles and saying that through this promised Savior King Jesus, uh, they were also uh, invited in to God's salvation. So come in. And so men and women, as God had appointed before time began, believed this message and they rejoiced 
They were filled with joy and they glorified the message, this message of hope to them. And then they began spreading it around. That's the natural response as the grace of God penetrates hearts that have been hardened by sin. People want to talk about it. People want to share it. They want to spread it. They, other people need to hear about it, that the grace of God, the mercy of God, stretches out to the farthest corners of the earth. So this is the second response, the response of faith. By God's grace, people express joy because of this message, and they express praise for this message, and they share this message so that the word of God spreads out to the whole region. But there's a third response that we should note before we close. Luke tells us in verse 50 that though the gospel spread rapidly, opposition mounted quickly in response. The Jewish leaders stir up the, the leading church ladies or synagogue ladies. Yeah, he stirs up the influential uh, men of the city and they begin to persecute these converts. And they literally chase Paul and Barnabas out of town. This would have put the the new Christians at Antioch in a tough spot. They've just become Christians and suddenly their pastors are gone and they're facing persecution. And so this brings us to this third response and it's the response, surprisingly, the response of God. Verse 52 says, And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now the disciples here refers to Uh, those who believe Paul and Barnabas' message refers to the church. And the verb in this verse is passive. It says that they were filled. It means that they were recipients of a filling that came from God, that God filled these believers with the Holy Spirit, and that he filled them with his heavenly joy. Not only had God appointed these men and women to eternal life and he had sent messengers of salvation to them, but as the people believed the message and embraced the Savior, God also filled them. In the face of hardship and persecution, he filled them with joy and the Holy Spirit. So if you're weighing the invitation of Jesus this morning, here's what you need to know. God's promise to you this morning is not wealth, health, and happiness. That's not what the new Christians in Antioch receive. They don't find that life suddenly got easier. In fact, it gets harder as they find themselves in a sudden opposition to the world. They're in a dangerous spot. So if you're thinking that Christianity is the remedy to life's difficulties, don't do it. It's not for you. You're not going to find ease here. But let me say this. Regardless of the hardship that comes with belonging to Christ and believing in Christ, it's the path of joy. It's the path of joy. It's the path to life with God and with His Holy Spirit. Now, Harvest, you need to hear this too. When we share the good news about Jesus with someone, and we call them to put their trust in Christ, we are calling them to a life of joy, a life of fellowship with God. We're inviting our parent. We're inviting our neighbor. We're inviting the mom that we meet at the park. We are inviting them to participate, to experience the joy of God and to have the Holy Spirit of God come and live within them and produce uh, love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and self-control and all the fruits of the Spirit. We're telling them to experience the joy of true forgiveness of sins. We're telling them to receive and enjoy the freedom that is found in Christ from the law's dreadful demands. 
We're telling them that there's joy, even as the world will be set against them. We forget this, don't we? We're at the checkout, making small talk with the Uber driver, and we're not inviting, uh, we somehow think that if we bring up the gospel that we are imposing upon them something uh, that's just uncomfortable. But we're not inviting people to sign up for a credit card they don't need or don't want. Right? When we hold forth the gospel, when we hold forth the, the news of salvation in Christ, through Christ, which is the fulfillment of God's promises and which now comes to sinners like us and to them, we're inviting them to a life of deep joy lived with God. So let's live in that confidence. Let's minister in that confidence and let's invite people into that joy knowing that we're inviting them to life with God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your beautiful, wonderful gospel. This message of salvation, which you were beginning uh, from the first moments, Lord, that that you had, had, had planned in eternity past to perform Lord, we thank you that you issued promises from the very first moment in the garden and you assured your people that you would provide a savior, a way to deal with our sin. And we thank you that you've done that in Christ who has come and he has actually died and he was actually raised to life, to a life that's incorruptible and that he invites us to enjoy that that eternal life to experience the joy that's to be found living with him and living in fellowship with your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to to experience and and, uh, to just delight in the gospel. And help us, Lord, to be those people like the disciples in this passage who, because we are so enamored with the Savior that we have been given, and we are so confident that we are inviting people to their joy, that we will speak freely and boldly about this message of salvation. Give us grace to do that, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.